Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, This man persuadeth me to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said unto the Jews, If indeed it were a matter of wrong or of wicked villainy, O ye Jews, reason would that I should bear with you but if they are questions about words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves. I am not minded to be a judge of these matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. The Book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 12 through 16, American Standard Version. But Felix, having more exact knowledge concerning the way, deferred them, saying, when Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will determine your matter. And he gave order to the centurion that he should be kept in charge and should have indulgence and not to forbid any of his friends to minister unto him. But after certain days, Felix came with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned of righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was terrified and answered, Go thy way for this time, and when I have a convenient season, I will call thee unto me. He hoped with all that money would be given him of Paul, wherefore also he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But when two years were fulfilled, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to gain favor with the Jews, Felix left Paul in bonds. The Book of Acts, chapter 24, verses 22 through 27, American Standard Version. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author, founder of Crystal Sea Books, and part-time vocal talent. Today on Anchored by Truth, we want to continue our series on the historical reliability of the books written by Luke. These books include the gospel that is named after him and the book of Acts. To start us off in our discussions, we are using some extracts from Crystal Sea's upcoming audiobook version of one of R.D.'s books, Doors of Destiny. A Choice Orb's Tale. Now, just as informational note, we'd like listeners to know that even though the audio version of Doors of Destiny hasn't been released, hard copies and ebook versions of Doors of Destiny are already available from Amazon and on our website. R.D., why don't you set the scene for the extract that we're going to hear today? Well, as a reminder to anyone who wasn't able to be with us last time, Doors of Destiny is an adventure tale. It's about four children, one brother and three sisters, who encounter what's called a choice orb on a walk through the woods. 
Choice orbs are sort of magic marbles that take people out of the normal realm of space and time to places where spiritual battles are being fought. And in this spiritual realm, entire worlds can be won or lost based on the outcome of the battles. Now, of course, for our four earthly travelers, four kids from one family, their main goal is just to get home. But as part of trying to get home, they keep finding themselves being drawn into and playing pretty important roles in saving these other worlds. Now, in today's scene, Randy, who is the brother, is engaged in a fierce battle with a two-headed beast called the Beast of Two Deaths. Now, Randy has a powerful shepherd's rod, and the shepherd's rod can change into just about any kind of weapon he's going to need, but unfortunately, it won't give him the power just to dismiss the beast entirely. And in this battle, Randy is fighting alongside a centurion named Cornelius and Cornelius' stallion, who's named Fortis. But Randy has just seen Cornelius get killed. Well, now Randy has to decide whether to continue to stay on Fortis and to continue the fight. His older sister, Danelle, has been watching the battle going on from a safe hiding place, but all that is about to change. Fortis did not stop even after he felt Cornelius fall. The great horse knew that his young rider was still mounted and was still in danger. Fortis galloped to a safe distance and then turned without instruction to stare back at the triumphant beast and his fallen master. Randy also stared at Cornelius' body, now just a dark, cape-covered lump on the stark white surface of the plains. The beast looked at Randy and Fortis as if to assess whether they were planning on attacking again, but seeing no indication of an immediate attack, he eyed Cornelius greedily. Randy immediately recalled why it was called the Beast of Two Deaths, and he could see the beast preparing to move toward the body to inflict the death for which it had been named. Fortis stomped and pawed impatiently, as if urging Randy to allow him to finish the battle they had begun. Fortis, no! Hold! Stay! No! Randy's voice was barely a whisper. Fortis reared slightly and neighed urgently, but Randy still hesitated. Danelle had seen Cornelius go down and was now beside herself with grief and anxiety. She thought that with Cornelius dead, there was little hope they could still drive off the beast, especially if it were up to only Randy and the rod. She watched Fortis carry Randy to safety, but she also watched as Fortis turned again toward the beast, and she could see the indomitable stallion getting ready to charge again. She saw and sensed Randy's hesitation, and she wanted to yell at Randy to just stop and get off Fortis. She desperately wanted Randy to come talk to her before he did anything stupid. But as she kept watching, she saw no indication that he was thinking about her at all. Even though Randy did not charge, he also did not dismount. She thought she saw Randy settle himself more firmly into the saddle, and she feared the worst. Janelle jumped up and started yelling, Randy, no! Don't do it! Don't do it! When Danelle jumped up, the beast spotted her, and it quickly spotted Rhonda and Ruthie, who had left their latest hiding place and were running to join Danelle. Both heads licked their lips hungrily, but the beast decided to finish off Cornelius' death first. It lumbered toward Cornelius. Randy heard Danelle and saw her expose herself. He also saw Rhonda and Ruthie, and he knew the beast had seen them. His heart was pounding. He was still shaking from Cornelius' loss, but when he saw that the beast was now aware of his family, he hesitated no longer. He was about to order Fortis to charge when Fortis stamped impatiently 
and looked at the shield that still protected them both. Without blinking, Randy said, Spear. The rod immediately transformed itself into a sturdy spear with a large iron spearhead. Randy glanced at the spear and ordered, Really big spear. The rod obediently lengthened the spear by two feet. Then Randy remembered the encounter with Inanna and how she had noticeably shrank back when she saw the scroll with diamonds on either end. In a voice flecked with steel, he commanded, Diamond Spearhead. Instantly, the rod transformed the spearhead from cold iron to crystal clear diamond, but this diamond had an emerald green glow around it. Randy knew nothing of bridle and reins, and his legs were too short to reach the stirrups, but he was not going to let those limitations stop him. With his left hand, he grabbed a good fistful of Force's mane while whispering apologies. Somehow he found a way to jam his feet into part of the saddle or various straps so he could hold himself upright while he held the spear under his right arm. He hoped his strength would be enough for one good strike. When he was as ready as he thought he could be, he quietly said to Fortis, Charge! Randy had not tried to sound strong or authoritative when he gave his final commands to the rod and Fortis, but anyone listening would have heard words that rung with both strength and authority and courage. A strong wind came up across the plains of justice, swirling this way and that. Overhead, a blue sky grew dark, and in the distance, lightning bolts marked the moment that the final charge began. Danelle started to rush down from her place toward the plains of justice, fumbling with the pen as she ran. Her foot hit an unforgiving rock and she went down. The pen rolled several feet away. The vicious beast reached Cornelius' body, reared up, and towered over it. The great beast of two deaths bellowed in triumph. Wow. So Randy has decided to fight to protect his family. Is he successful? Well, for anyone who's curious about the outcome of the battle and what happens next, I'd suggest they get a copy of Doors of Destiny for themselves. It's not only a great adventure tale, It's also packed with a ton of references that will help people learn more about Scripture and help them think about the role of faith in helping people fight the real battles that we all face on this world. And I think that's an important note. There are a lot of books out there that not only don't help people deepen their faith, but actually take them in another direction. It's nice to know that it's possible to enjoy a story that is not only entertaining, but also edifying. And one of the reasons that Doors of Destiny has that quality is that you made a point to be sure that Doors of Destiny always pointed people back to the scripture as its inspiration. Many of the scenes and characters in Doors of Destiny would point people to the Book of Acts, wouldn't they? Exactly. In fact, the name Cornelius comes from chapter 10 of Acts. And that's a great starting point for our discussion today about the historical reliability of the Bible. Today, I want to point out that Luke, as a historian, did a magnificent job of getting the names and titles of a significant number of people and government officials right. By doing so, Luke proved that he was a very careful observer and recorder. Can you give us a couple examples of what you're thinking about? Sure. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 24. We heard a portion of this chapter in our opening scriptures for today. In the section that we listened to, We heard several names of people who were prominent in Israel during the middle part of the first century A.D., which is the time period covered by Acts. We heard the name Felix, we heard the name Drusilla, 
and we heard the name Festus in connection with the trial of Paul. The fact that Felix was the Roman procurator at the time in question is corroborated by two other ancient historians, Josephus and Tacitus. And these ancient historians also confirm that Felix's wife was named Drusilla. And since Felix was the procurator, more or less the chief Roman official, it makes sense that he would be involved in the judicial proceedings that involved a controversial figure like Paul. Also, Luke's identification of Festus as Felix's successor is likewise confirmed by Josephus and by another ancient historian, Suetonius. So you can see that we have extra-biblical confirmation for the names that we heard in our opening scripture for today. And so this extra-biblical confirmation gives us confidence that when Luke was writing that chapter of the book of Acts, as well as the entirety of Acts, he was recording actual history. And even though it wasn't part of our opening scripture readings today, elsewhere in Acts, Luke mentions Drusilla's older sister Bernice and her husband Agrippa. I think that Josephus also confirmed that these were real historical figures in Israel at this time. But the Agrippa who was married to Bernice is actually the son of the first Agrippa that Luke had mentioned earlier in Acts in chapter 12. Yes, the first Agrippa that Luke mentions was Herod Agrippa I, who was the ruler of Judea from A.D. 27 to A.D. 44. He is the one who prosecuted members of the very early church. Herod Agrippa I's reign is confirmed by coins that have been found with the inscription, The Great King Agrippa, Friend of Caesar. His son, Herod Agrippa II, ruled the area of Galilee from A.D. 56 to A.D. 95. And this is the Agrippa that Paul appeared before in the trial that we heard about in today's scripture. Paul appealed to this Agrippa before Paul was sent on to Rome. And similar to his father, Herod Agrippa II's likeness is also found on coins, confirming his historicity, as his father's historicity had been confirmed by earlier coins. And that's just the beginning of the individual people that Luke mentions, for which we have plenty of extra-biblical confirmation. Luke also gets facts about certain individuals right that were at one time thought to be wrong. Right. And not just Luke, but the other gospel writers as well. Can you give us an example of what you're thinking about here? Well, for many years there were questions about the existence and the actual title of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who presided over the trial of Jesus. Later Roman writers, as well as a lot of Bible reference works, referred to Pilate as the procurator of Judea. But Luke and the other gospel writers called Pilate a governor, not a procurator. The fact that governor was the correct title was confirmed in 1961 when a two-by-three-foot stone was discovered that had a Latin inscription, and the translation of the inscription read as follows. Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has presented the Tiberium to the Caesareans. And of course, the title of prefect was more equivalent to the title of governor as opposed to the title procurator, which was not. So this was not only archaeological confirmation for the existence of Pilate, but it was also confirmation that Pilate was the prefect or governor of Judea, not a Roman procurator. We now know that the title procurator was not used at the time of Jesus' trial for the Roman governors. This title only came into usage at a later time, during the reign of Emperor Claudius, which was A.D. 41 to A.D. 54, 
whereas Jesus' trial occurred somewhere in the vicinity of A.D. 32 or A.D. 33. During Claudius's reign, the title of the Roman governors was changed from prefect to procurator. So although the later Roman writers gave Pilate the incorrect title, Luke and the other gospel writers gave him the correct title. They called him a governor, which was correct for the historical period in which he was the governor, not a procurator, as later people called Pilate in error. And it wasn't just government officials that Luke correctly named, was it? Luke correctly named the two high priests who presided during the life of Jesus. Caiaphas' existence was confirmed when a limestone ossuary containing an inscription bearing his name was found in 1990 in the old city of Jerusalem. And Josephus confirms that Ananias was the high priest who preceded him. Not only did Luke get the names of individual people right, Luke was also a master at keeping the various titles of Roman government officials in order. And given the Romans' propensity for complicated organizational structures, particularly when it came to the various provinces and cities included in their far-flung empire, this is no small achievement. This would have been particularly true when the Roman Empire was at the height of its power, which is when Luke wrote his books. That's an excellent observation. Stephen Neal, who was a Scottish bishop and New Testament scholar, and who wrote several books about the New Testament, said that, Experience shows that nothing is more difficult than to get titles exactly right. And as you have observed, Luke wrote his books when Rome controlled not only Europe, but also most of the Middle East and a pretty good chunk of North Africa. And Luke and Paul traveled quite widely, so they were in a lot of different parts of the empire. Therefore, they encountered a wide variety of governing officials with a wide variety of different official titles. And we can understand that just by looking at the various governmental structures in our own state of Florida, which is a very large state. At the local level, we have counties, but within those counties are cities and towns. The legislators at the county level are often called county commissioners, but in cities or towns, they're often called council members. The chief law enforcement officer of a county is a sheriff, but in a city or town, it's often a chief. But there are certain officers that aren't localized to a county or city, such as the state attorney. And there are two counties in Florida, Dade and Duval, where the local government structures have been consolidated. So it would be easy for someone who wasn't familiar with Florida to get titles wrong if they were writing a book about their travels through Florida. Exactly. And it would demonstrate their accuracy as an observer if they got the titles right. So let's look at some of the specifics of public officials that Luke got right. And these examples that we're going to cite today come from an article on Renew.org, that's R-E-K-N-E-W.org, entitled, Is the Book of Acts Reliable? But there are a large number of other sources besides just this article that people consult to validate the information that we're covering today. Here are some examples of titles that Luke got right. The governors of senatorial provinces in Cyprus, Achaia, and Asia are accurately termed proconsuls, whereas those over other imperial provinces such as Syria and Judea are correctly termed hagimon. Similarly, Herod is not called the king of Galilee, but a tetrarch. But other members of the Herod family, Agrippa I and II, are properly titled king. Also, similarly, Luke notes, and quite incidentally, 
that Philippi is a Roman colony whose magistrates were therefore called praetors and whose attenders were called lictors or sergeants. In Thessalonica, however, the chief authorities were called politarchs, a term not found anywhere else in extant literature, but that politarchs was the correct title for the authorities in Thessalonica is confirmed six times by archaeological findings in Thessalonica. So Stephen Neal concluded that exactly the right title is used at exactly the right time and place. Luke also accurately noted that the town clerk of Ephesus functioned as a liaison officer between civic administration and the Roman government in the province of Asia, as well as taking part in town assemblies. And even on a relatively obscure island like Malta, Luke got the title of the island's leader right by naming Publius as the chief official of the island. And Luke's use of the correct title has now been confirmed by inscriptions that have been found on the island. In fact, another prominent archaeologist, Sir William Ramsey, who started out as a critic of the historicity of the Book of Acts, was won over by Luke's constant attention to such details as titles. Ramsey wrote, quote, The officials with whom Paul and his companions brought in contact are those who would be there. Every person is found just where he ought to be. Proconsuls in senatorial provinces, Asiarch in Ephesus, Strategoi in Philippi, Politarchs in Thessalonica, magicians and soothsayers everywhere. Unquote. Ramsey gives a great illustration of why it's so important for us to at least do a modicum of study about the historical background of the Bible's books, especially the ones like Acts that are historically rich. Luke made some observations in Acts that we can't confirm for ourselves, like Christ's ascension but we can know that Luke was right about the ascension because we can be confident that he got the facts right that we are able to check. Yes, and just one final example to close the loop on the scriptures we use today. It might be one thing to get a name right. It might be another to get a title right. But we have to remember that historical events are set in specific time frames. So if we get confirmation that Luke got all three right, it's sort of a historicity trifecta. Historicity trifecta. Try saying that three times fast. I'll pass, thank you. Anyway, in our first opening scripture, we heard about Paul being brought before a man named Gallio as part of a dispute with some Jews in Achaia. But as a Roman official, a Roman governing official, Gallio had no interest in judging what he deemed to be an internal matter pertaining to the Jewish religion. But Luke's identification of Gallio as proconsul of Achaia in AD 51 has been confirmed by a discovered inscription at Delphi. And so this harmonizes perfectly with Luke's account in Acts. Well, in this episode of Anchored by Truth, which we've entitled The Facts in Acts, we've taken a look at how Luke was consistently accurate in his observations about people, governing officials, and positions and titles. Next time, we're going to take a look and see how Luke did with details about geography and local customs. And, spoiler alert, we're going to find out that Luke was just as accurate when he wrote about places as he was when he wrote about people. And if Luke was so careful when he wrote about mundane things, like government titles and local customs, I think it can give us enormous confidence that he was no less careful when he told us about Jesus rising from the dead and ascending to the Father to represent us as our advocate. 
Luke's very, very well-established and excellent record as a historian on matters that we can confirm gives us the confidence to know that he was equally accurate about matters that we can't confirm directly, but which are central to the Christian faith. Sounds like it's a great time to have a prayer. Since we're approaching Veterans Day, how about if today we listen to a prayer for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and others who willingly place themselves in harm's way so we can enjoy freedom in our nation. A prayer for deployed soldiers. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we come to you because you are a great God and a merciful God. Lord, we seek your face and your favor for our brothers and sisters who are today in harm's way on our behalf and on the behalf of this nation. We are reminded that our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines have accepted the call to serve a cause greater than themselves in the same manner that you call each of us to place others above ourselves through the supreme example of your Holy Son, Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would grant our soldiers your protection and defense. We pray that you would be a shield and a hedge about them, warding off the dangers of the enemy who are opposed to truth and justice. You have promised your children that you would ever be with them and that we need never fear, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We pray that you would bring this promise to the minds of our soldiers and that you would strengthen them even as they see the dangers all about them. We pray, O Lord, that you would grant wisdom to those who lead our brothers and sisters, that you would make them ever mindful of their obligations to you and to the less fortunate. Though war is a terrible reminder of the fallen nature of man, we pray that you would allow compassion and mercy to also mark our actions and those of our soldiers, especially where such mercy will lead to reconciliation and peace. We pray that you would comfort the families and the comrades of those who have recently fallen. We pray for healing and recovery for those who have been wounded, that you would provide for their needs and surround them with the comfort of your presence and that of compassionate caregivers. We ask that, if it be consistent with your merciful will, that the conflict might be resolved quickly and our soldiers be restored to their homes and families. But we pray, above all, that it would be your will and not ours that is done. We pray that you would help us to see where we may be of service and give us hearts to bring your comfort and your word to the places where they are lacking. We pray that everything we do would serve to bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you that you have given us a part in your work. All this we ask in the name of your precious Son and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Before we close for today, I'd like to introduce Pastor Ross Kilpatrick from Northwoods Church, who has a brief announcement for us about the upcoming visit of Dr. Jonathan Sarfati coming to Tallahassee on November 10th. Pastor Kilpatrick, can you give our listeners a little more information? I'm so excited to announce that Dr. Sarfati will be joining us this coming Sunday at Northwoods Church in Tallahassee to talk to us at the 930 hour about dinosaurs and fossils and to have some interaction there. 
at the 1045 worship service. He's going to be bringing our message, and I'm so excited about him being willing to share God's word with us on November the 10th, that Sunday morning. And then also in the evening at 6 o'clock, Dr. Sarfati has agreed to have more of a casual sit-down meal to where we can ask questions for him regarding creation or dinosaurs or what God's Word says about those things. So all of the questions will be asked, and we'll have an hour period of time or so for him to take those questions and to respond to them. Northwest Church is located at 3762 Capital Circle Northwest. We would like to welcome you to come join us on November the 10th, beginning at 9.30 in the Life Group Hour, at 1045 in our service, and also again at 6 p.m. as we have a light meal and have opportunities to ask questions. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics, so if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time as we continue our discussion on the remarkable historical accuracy of Luke, who was not only a physician who addressed bodily needs, but a historian who continues to minister to the spiritual needs today. We hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. We'd also like to remind listeners that even though the audio version of Doors of Destiny hasn't been released, Hard copies and ebook versions of Doors of Destiny are already available from Amazon and on our website. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com where we're not famous, but our boss is.